Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. For a fresh new start And Jay Network will bring you there So let's talk about it When life and on the air Good morning everyone, this is Fran Lewis This is MJ Network MJ after my sister Marsha Joyce And I am excited to welcome back psychotherapist Dennis Palumbo and we will revisit fear, isolation, stress, anxiety, and any new advances in medicine hoping for the vaccine. So good morning, Dennis. How are you? I'm fine, Fran. How are you? Hanging in there very slowly. What can I say? So I'm doing well, this for me. I'm doing. Uh, yeah. Most yeah. people, I think, are just hanging in there right now. Yeah, I know. And I just found out some distressing news about the vaccine, too. Um, hoping that the person that told it to me was wrong. I'm allergic to egg protein, and they're claiming that there's egg protein in the vaccine. I'm hoping that they're wrong about that, really wrong. Mm. So how can fear take over your life, and why do many people, I notice even in my building, a lot of people just stay home. They don't want to go outside ever because they're afraid they're going to catch this thing. Well, on the whole, it's probably, I mean, just going by the protocols, better to stay home than not right now because a lot of people out and about are not practicing social distancing and maybe yeah. are not wearing masks. So I understand the inclination. The The problem is you want to use fear for what it's meant to do, which is to alert us to real danger. The problem is when people allow their fear to overwhelm them, including with mm-hmm. imagined danger. And so, I, 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 for example, I think anti-vaxxers are people whose fear is unwarranted and whose belief systems uh, are unscientific. Um, but, you know, this is a, a time in our history as humans when there's so much information, much of it wrong, hitting us 24-7 that it's stoking mm-hmm. those fears. It's, it's 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 scary because every day I get these emails on Newzella or what the CDC says or what Dr. Fauci says. And I got one this morning with 27 places you should never go, ever. Oh, I mean, oh my gosh. I, I'm, I want to take a plastic bubble, seriously. I mean, I don't. I wouldn't go on a plane. I don't eat side restaurants. I, I have people bring it out. I very rarely even go into the bakery. And when I do, I tell them to have it ready before I walk in. I mean, and going into the pharmacy, I mean, that's not a problem because there's nobody ever back there, which is great. So how dangerous is it to be afraid? I mean, I get well, nervous like sometimes said, just fear, walking in the hall. Fear is an important nervous. tool. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I'm interrupting you. Please go on. That's okay. How dangerous is it to be afraid? I mean, I walk past people in my building, and if I see somebody, sometimes they walk without a mask, I, st- I, I step back. I mean, then there were workmen yesterday that came, like 10 of them in the elevator. I walked past them. They didn't, I didn't go in with them. I wasn't near them. I just walked back. 
how dangerous is it just to let your fear overcome you during this pandemic? It's, I, you know, everybody gets nervous. I get nervous too. Well, that's the thing is that how do you navigate an appropriate amount of fear? I mean, I think if I walked yeah. past an elevator that had 10 workmen in it not wearing a mask, I wouldn't get in the elevator. I wouldn't get no, in the no. elevator today with more than one person. Um, I, I think there, right now at this point when there's so many unknowns, not only about the vaccine yeah. but about the virus itself, which is mutating, or there's another strain of it, yeah. there's so much – uh, information that we're trying to process and you can't process information if you're just seeing it through the lens of fear. Uh, so I think the goal, I think, is to process information as much as possible through the lens of vigilance. And that's different than fear. And so what I try to talk to my patients about is being mm-hmm. appropriately vigilant, but also having cautious optimism that things will get better because things always do change. And one of the things that fear does is it reinforces the idea, well, well, this is it, and it's always going to be this way forever. Well, there's only one rule of life, which is that nothing ever stays the same. So everything changes, even this. So I think if you can, in your mind, reframe it as vigilance added to cautious optimism, you can get through day-to-day the pandemic. The thing that really feeds fear Mm -hmm. is catastrophizing the future, you know, saying, well, for the next five years, we can never leave our home. You know, that kind of thinking paralyzes us. And if we're paralyzed, we don't think clearly. That's very true. I mean, everything on the news is like, sometimes I think they make it worse, much worse with their newscasts. And they look happy. They actually look happy. Oh, the, the the virus is there, and we're there, we're there, there. and you you see people that are actually getting the virus, getting the uh, the vaccine. Oh, but they're going to be sick. You got to watch out. I mean, so you wonder, are they doing it just to scare the public or something like that? It's fear, it's fearful. Well, I don't think it's to scare the public, but unfortunately, you know, the old journalism creed: if it bleeds, it leads, and yeah. by that, what it means is disaster gets ratings disaster and problems feed that paranoia that people have Um, Mm -hmm. but it's also again uh, the media has this responsibility to present information there is Mm -hmm. a a tendency in the media I think to overwork uh, uh, some of the concern or outrage which is another thing I've been telling my therapy patients to go on a news diet uh, I'm a big believer in keeping the mm-hmm. amount of news input uh, very – I mean, to me, I just check the news in the morning, and I check it in the evening uh, just to make sure, you know, we haven't had an alien invasion or something while I wasn't looking. But other than that, I don't, like, glue myself to CNN or MSNBC. Mm-hmm. I think that's a mistake. Uh, and when you have so much unmediated bad news, inputting itself into your psyche going to destabilize you. It just is. So I think people should go on a news diet. I agree with you, but I get these emails or these news flashes on my phone and I delete them. White Plains is doing this and the governor is doing that and you can't do this. I mean, literally, Dr. Fossey sent an email yesterday with 27 places you should never go. 
Don't go into a store. Don't go into the grocery. Don't go into the plane. Don't go into um, a restaurant. I mean, you got to get food somewhere in the supermarket. I mean, I go into Acme in the morning. There's nobody there at 7 o'clock in the morning. So that's okay. And people are pretty good. But in, as far as the elevator in my building, they were, you were specifically told you go in with the person that you live with and anybody else has to wait. And they have to wait. Well, that, they do that not. makes sense. Again, yeah, it does. It makes a lot of sense. Follow, it's to follow the protocols with a sense of yeah. alertness and vigilance, but not a sense of the sky is falling because that doesn't help anyone. Panic yeah. does not help yeah. anyone. Now, that said, it would be kind of crazy if most people didn't have a sense of anxiety and low-level yeah. depression because this is a very, very difficult time in our culture, not only with COVID but with political unrest and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. This is the context of our lives right now. So I think the key, as in most things, is, is moderation, is what the Buddhists call the middle way, where you're alert, <clears throat> you follow the protocols, but you allow yourself the possibility that things will get better because they always do and make sure your day-to-day life is as meaningful as you can make it and you can make it meaningful even sticking around the house so it's important not to like throw the baby out with the bathwater here the experience of living can still be had under these circumstances It's, it's, it's scary I mean every single day we make sure that we take like a ride for half an hour in the car, leave the window open just to drop, and just to get outside. And that's the a good idea. Is, I think that's yeah, it, and it does work. It does work. It makes me feel better. Um, and I said, clear my head. Being bearing honest, doing these broadcasts is a, is a godsend. This is a godsend for me because I'm able to just like forget about everything and just do it, and it's fun. And I have. Shows the book all the way to the end of May. I am totally booked. And this, well, I think it's, it's a wonderful way to express yourself and, yeah. and to sort of let you know, just let your your moment to moment consciousness flow. I notice when you do these shows, you're very spontaneous, and I would imagine that that feels really good. It, it does feel really good, and, and I just like this is it's fun. Um, as a matter of fact, I was going to ask you, I'm going to be doing one on May 24th, so I was wondering if you want to join it, because I want to talk about how you use your vocation in your writing. And Alan Topol already said yes, I was hoping you would say yes, and one other person for May 24th at 10. We're going to talk about how you use your psychotherapist vocation in your writing when you write your Daniel Ronaldi um, work. Uh, that sounds fine to me. Luckily, oh, it's far okay. enough off that I can say yes. I don't even have to check my book oh, this yet. Is, but this, this is good. Let's go, let's go ahead and say yes. And and uh, I, I think being, you know, or who are you going to try for anyone else? Or Because or, Alan Tobo mm-hmm. is a great guest. That's a great guest idea. Yeah, and Jim Nesmith is too. I'm going, I have, Alan Jacobson put together something for May 20th, like shocked me. John Land, him, uh, Stephen James, and R.G. Belsky, and we're going to talk about a whole bunch of things that are on my phone somewhere. <laughs> well, they are all things. good. They're all really good writers. So that's yeah, a, a they are great everybody. 
you know, they're, they're, what, you what don't have a ringer in the bunch. Uh, that's, I know, and it keeps my mind going because I don't. I just listen and say, "Well, okay, this is great. I can put my feet back and and learn something." So, what might some triggers be that trigger people to be afraid? I mean, I get that way too. I say to my husband, "God, I am so so afraid of this going to happen or that's going to happen." I haven't seen my family since a year ago, in November, because to be very honest, I won't stay in a hotel. That that that's a, what a no no. I mean, and they, I don't, my brother doesn't believe in wearing a mask. Now I think he does. And my nephews, you know, see their friends all the time. So we haven't gone there. So what are some triggers that make you fearful? And do these fearful things lead you to feel into isolation? Well, uh, the answer is yes. The best uh, the, probably the biggest trigger is what's on the media. Uh, you know, you watch mm-hmm. the news and they tell you something like the 27 places you should never go. Um, yeah. Uh, but another trigger for a lot of people is family and friends to whom they're very close who don't mm-hmm. wear masks or don't think the virus is that bad or whatever. And it really triggers a sense of alienation. One of the things that I'm finding in my practice is when family members <clears throat> don't subscribe to the protocols, it's mm-hmm. very destabilizing. Because you go, God, this is my brother. I've known him for, you know, 35 years. I'm wearing a mask. I'm social distancing. He's going to bars. What the heck is going on? So that's very triggering when family and friends do not take the protocol seriously. And then, of course, you get into big conflicts with them. So you not only have the fear and isolation that comes from trying to follow the protocols, you have the emotional conflict that now you and your brother or you and your son or you and your sister are now on opposite sides of an issue. See, the, from the very beginning, I don't want to get political, but from the very beginning, the administration mm-hmm. has politicized yeah. the virus. So your position on the virus almost depends on your political beliefs, which is not how science works. It's not how facts the fact of something doesn't care what your political affiliation is. So the idea that the virus has been politicized is one of the reasons it's been so ineffective from the top down in terms of dealing with it, pro-science. And to not deal with it is to be pro-Trump. And that's crazy. But that's what we've done. And that's where we have hundreds of thousands of deaths. And uh, our handling of the virus uh, for an industrialized nation has been a disaster. And when you politicize something that is medical or scientific, like politicizing gravity, you know, it's like someone who says, well, you know, uh, t- uh, believing in gravity takes away my individual mm-hmm. rights. Well, that's lunatic. And that's kind of what it was like for people who didn't want to wear a mask. You know, the culture there are still people that don't wear you. masks, and they're really stupid. Well, the thing is, the culture requires you to wear pants, and that's not yeah. a violation of your individual rights. So no. asking people during a pandemic to – to it, it's sort of like London in the Blitz in the 40s. Everyone was told, shut your lights off because of the bombs. Well, someone who says, no, I'm leaving my lights on because that's my individual right. Well, it's going to get everybody in the neighborhood – have a bomb dropped on them. So that's the limit of your individual right is, is when it negatively impacts others. The thing that Dr. Fauci said that I thought was the most powerful is he said, I never thought care for others 
And that's what the mask mm-hmm. is. It's caring that you're not a spreader. That's right. You know, I, I call every Tuesday for my pea soup to the diner right down the block. And I don't have to tell them. They, 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 I get on the phone and they go, we know it's you. We got it ready. We're going to bring it out. And I, I crack up laughing, but I appreciate it. Or I'll call the bakery and I'll go, do you have my rolls and my prune danish? I don't eat very much of anything. And we got them ready. Just don't worry about it. We'll bring them out or it's all ready for you. It, it, you know, you, you don't know. There are people actually that actually do care. And there are people that actually don't don't care. And and it's it's scary. I mean, there are a lot of people that don't want to go outside, that they're afraid to go outside. And I'm, I'm stuck with a lot of stress because my sister died 10 years ago, and I haven't quite dealt with that yet. And then one of my nieces or nephews have a problem, you know, who they call me to handle it. Yeah. And I do the best I can. They're in Florida, and the sad part is my niece, Carly's uh, new record, you saw that, came out on Friday. She just got over COVID. She had it also. They didn't tell me. Oh, my gosh. Uh, her mother yeah. and father and brother had it. Um, my cousins in Florida, everybody had it. They all had it. I don't want it. And I keep trying to explain to them, if you have family gatherings, if you have all these parties, you go out to wherever you want, you're going to get it. I mean, really, yeah. seriously. That is I mean, true. I, go into, I go to the beauty parlor on Saturday morning, and I go to the diner, and they bring out my, my oatmeal grits. But when my hairdresser told me, Three weeks ago when I was on the air, guess what, Fran? I have COVID. Needless to say, the words that came out of my mouth that day, I was like, holy God, I got tested five times after that. I got tested Saturday because somebody else passed by me, but I'm okay. Thank God it's negative because I don't, I don't ever want to think about it. So what if, how does stress come into this? Because sometimes physical problems are caused because of stress. And this whole anxiety. So how do you deal with that? How do you calm yourself down when you wanted to go, ah? Stress management, even pre-COVID, is yeah. a very, very important aspect of life here in the West because we're overwhelmed with um, uh, the media. We're overwhelmed with work. We're overwhelmed with the family. There's always something that's going to stress you out. There's no way you can be in life and not be stressed unless you live in a <laughs> cabin up in the north woods or something like that which i personally would find stressful <laughs> but the point is i think that everyone whether it's in covid or not should develop good tools for self-care um the there the the ways that have always worked for alleviation of stress are exercise um and meditation uh mm-hmm. getting a lot of sleep a good night's sleep but one of the best ways is to be immersed in something. You know, the Hindus say the key to contentment is absorption. So if you're absorbed in doing a crossword puzzle, you're not stressed. If you're absorbed in working in your garden, your stress goes away. And so I think most people, I would advise, find something that you totally engaged in, whether it's, you know, building a shelf for your bedroom or whatever, <clears throat> The more you're engaged completely in something, the more it quiets your chattering mind. And your chattering mind is where all of your fears and uh, neurotic worries come from. But you can just, you know, anyone who's, who's really deeply engaged uh, in, in playing a game, for example, or playing a sport, 
is mm-hmm. hardly going to be sitting around thinking, yeah, but what if my Aunt Betty doesn't like me? You know, so I think the best way to deal with stress, in addition to meditation, good sleep habits, and exercise, is to be engaged in some activity where you find yourself losing yourself in the activity. Uh, and I, I think that that's, uh, I think that's the best way to deal with stress. You're never going to get rid of all stress, but it's manageable if you do the appropriate self-care. Yeah, I understand. I take stress management every month. I do. Um, I have somebody that calls me every month on like VC. We do a, 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 a FaceTime like kind of thing because his office, I won't go there. He doesn't have the office open anyway. And we did like for 45 minutes, and I just can, you know, say whatever I want, and he takes care of, you know, I feel better at the end. He gave me some breathing exercises, and he gave me even a book for called How to Relax. That does help a lot. Good. So, it's, yeah, it's, it's, but it's expensive. Trust me, it's expensive. But seriously, well, I do feel better. Well, you don't need to class like that to do deep breathing. Yeah. I mean, the best thing about breathing really deeply is it oxygenates yeah. your blood, which goes to your brain. Yeah. And that's really good. If if you find yourself really stressed, you'll notice your breathing is very shallow or blocked. And yeah. that doesn't help. That's going to uh, uh, create real issues. That's why, I mean, be, what I do between patient sessions, like today I have mm-hmm. nine patients. And so between wow. sessions, I'll do like a minute of really deep breathing. And I find that very, very helpful. Yeah, it does. It does help me a lot. It does. Because out of nowhere, I'll just sit down on my chair and I'll go, okay, let me take five minutes to myself just to, to breathe, just to calm down. Because I know also, like, my niece started her class today in English, and I know she's going to hit me with, can you help me with my essay? And that doesn't get me nervous. I just have to like, give me five minutes to figure this out. But, yeah, you, you get overwhelmed with a whole bunch of stuff, and it's hard. So... How do we determine where it's safe to go? Now, my my family goes wherever they want. My nieces in Florida have parties. My niece had company over for Thanksgiving. Another one had a New Year's party. I said, you're asking for trouble. Seriously. Because you don't know who they come in contact with. Even the kids that go to school. My nephews go to school, and there's nine kids in the class, and the teacher is in the front in plexiglass, but the teacher had it last month. So how do you know where to go and where not to go? And how do you determine where it's safe to go? Because uh, my, my nephews, you know, play ball with their friends. They um, go out with their friends. They go, you know, they play basketball outside. I go, you shouldn't really be doing that. So how do, how do you know wh- where it's safe to go? And how do you tell people not to do that? Well, that's an individual choice. I mean, my belief is, because it's spiking so much, uh, we should follow the protocols that, that are yeah. told to us. I mean, frankly, if you can do it, I think you shouldn't go anywhere. Uh, I don't understand it. I, I didn't understand Thanksgiving and Christmas when people said, yeah, but we always gather around the tree. Well, we're at war with a virus. We're not going to gather around the tree this year. I, I just, I just, you know, frankly, I'm flabbergasted by how many people feel it's in their inalienable right to go to Starbucks. So I I think it's an individual choice. But if you go out, you're among spreaders, and you're a spreader yourself. If you can live with that, I guess go do it. 
Uh, I'm a big believer that if everybody would stay home for six weeks, but you're never going to get everyone to do that, particularly young people. Uh, Number one, because they believe even if they get it, they'll survive, and the numbers indicate they will. Uh, It'll be unpleasant, but they'll they'll survive it. And um, a lot of people feel that's a price they're willing to pay. And so um, I've had a couple patients who are in their 30s Mm. or 40s who've had COVID and said, yeah, it was really terrible. It was like having the world's worst flu, and then it went away. But – there were after effects. They couldn't taste for six months or they uh-huh. had no sense of smell for six weeks. And we're finding that there's a lot more uh, organ damage after you've recovered from the symptoms that are, are, are available to you, you know, that you can see and feel. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of asymptomatic after effects. So why risk getting it by going somewhere? So, uh, you know, when you say, how do you get someone not to go? I don't know. All you can do is say to them, I guess it doesn't matter to you what scientists and epidemiologists say is important. Um, because if you go out, you increase your risk of getting it and certainly your risk of spreading it. And I just don't think that's a risk worth taking. To me, it's like driving without your seatbelt. Why take that risk? So, you know, that's, I don't think people should go anywhere. But I'm, you know, I'm also in the target range. You know, I, I have, you know, I'm the age and have the symptoms where I'm much more likely to get it and in a severe way than someone who's 30 years younger than me. So I'm not going anywhere. I'm not willing to take that chance either, but you're not going to believe this. I just got an email on my phone from, a, from an urgent care asking me if I wanted a virtual visit for a COVID test. I'm serious. <laughs> No, I, mean, I don't know whether the laugh or crowd cracking open and going, here it is, testing alert, need a COVID test and don't want to wait in line, wait to be seen for an illness or injury from your home, schedule a virtual visit with this particular urgent care. And, yeah, I don't think so. Seriously. No. I, I didn't know whether the laugh. Well, I mean, I just got this just now. And yet if you call them on the phone, they'll say to you, um, we have to put you don't get them. You get like an answering service, and they tell you when you can come in to do anything. And I wouldn't even think to do that. Not in a million years. <laughs> what can I say? Um, yeah. So I'm doing something next Thursday that probably, I don't know if people are going to like it or not. But we're going to talk about the fact that people have these riots, these rallies, these um, outdoor gatherings, and not wearing masks, and thinking that they're immune. By the way, for those people that think you're immune, my hairdresser told me that two of his friends got the virus twice, and you can get it again, just so people do know. You can get it again. So how do, how do you deal with this, the, the television, the riots, the rally, and the fact that the rocket scientist that's running the government is so brilliant he doesn't wear a mask, and he's putting, his, he's putting the, the onus on his vice president, who finally showed some guts, which is really good. So how do, you, how do you deal with that? I am taking on this topic next Thursday. We're going to talk about the uh, with the Capitol and the unrest in America with an FBI agent. So we're going to deal with that. But how how do you how do people understand? I mean, seriously, the president is setting a bad example, and he thinks that he's wonderful. What what kind of message is that for people to get? Not a good one. Well, no, it's not been a good one for a long, long time, and so. Yeah, he's, uh, 
he he is at this point pretty irrelevant except for what he instigates, yeah. like at his rally last week. I think for most people it was very upsetting to see uh, all these uh, insurrectionists and rioters and mob. I mean, it was a mob. It was not protest. Yeah, and I've seen was, them out uh, here. Yeah, so I, I think for most people it was very destabilizing. And, you know, there's a – most people have a kind of belief in the institutions of government. I mean, they think they're corrupt and all this other stuff, but they need them to be safe and secure. And I think when you see the Capitol building breached or let's say they yeah, do that something – Yeah, that was horrible. Yeah, then what happens is your feeling is that there there's nobody at the helm that everything that we count on every day, so much so that we don't even think about it, can be breached. And uh, it was very destabilizing for a lot of people uh, and and terrifying. It was very terrifying for a lot of people. Um, To me, it seemed like the logical outgrowth of having violence incited so often from the administration. Mm -hmm. So... Um, or the or the you know the fraudulent claims of you know the the election was stolen from us that kind of nonsense <clears throat> and so I, I I think for most people who are not lunatics um, uh, it, it was terrifying. It is terrifying. It is just watching them break into the building and then the chief of police had to resign and they got somebody else and they don't even know if this person knows what to do. And how it could be, it could have been avoided. I mean, he he wanted this to happen, which is really sad. And people died. That's even sadder. I know. So the other, the fifth component, we have stress, anxiety, fear, isolation, and depression. And of course, we have the economic thing. We have businesses are closing. People are losing money. They're not getting, you know, stimulus checks. Six hundred dollars doesn't exactly go that far. So how do you deal no, with with the, with the with the depression? And the, and the financial aspect of this, which is taking its toll on a lot of businesses up here. I ride up and down um, Hotel Avenue or Yonkers or whatever, and a lot of places are just closed. They're just gone out. That's it. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, uh, the, the, the way people are handling um, uh, their financial difficulties is to panic. Yeah. I mean, the reality is I'm not an economist. So to me, I don't know how people who have small businesses can survive. I'm I'm very lucky because as a therapist, I can work from home. I mean, I I prefer doing it from my office, but I have to do it on the phone or FaceTime or something like that. But I'm lucky. I'm one of the lucky ones who can work from home. Most people can't. And it's there's nothing more destabilizing, not only financially, but work shapes our life. I mean, we need that habit of you get up, you go to work, you're valued for what you do, you get a paycheck at the end of the week, and so you feel part of something, and you can support your family. You can provide for your family. The biggest stressor I've seen in my practice is for people who have lost their jobs or lost income is their fear of not being able to provide for their family. Um, and like, I, I don't know, some of these businesses that have gone out of, uh, out of business, like restaurants and stuff, I don't know how they get back on their feet. I really don't. So it's going to be the economic impact of the COVID has been in one way as devastating as the medical impact in the sense of disrupting people's lives. 
It, it's 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 scary. I know. And you know the other the other thing that bothers me is that I look at I was looking at my my two little next door neighbor kids, my little boys next door, and they were standing outside this morning and yesterday morning waiting for the bus, wearing a mask. That that breaks my heart that they have to stand there and stay in school all day wearing a mask. My nephews told me that only during lunchtime, you know, they have to be careful because they're sitting one behind each other with the glass in front of them, that you have to be careful when you take your mask off to eat. And my niece's school, they said that um, they have this menu. You're not allowed to bring food or anything in. And they actually bring in, like, restaurant food to the kids, and they're allowed to take their masks off for 10, 15 minutes while they eat lunch. This has a great impact on education. Because the school performance, a lot of kids aren't going at all, that I know. I mean, in the school I worked in, um, I don't even think, the, I think the principal locks herself in the office and doesn't come out all day. And I would worry about the teachers there because I know the schools in New York City are not sanitized the pro- properly, even though they say they are. So how is that impact going to affect kids la- down the line as far as learning and education? Because some of them are just giving up. Like my nephew decided not to go back next this term because he doesn't want to, take the classes from home and and you have to pay for the dorm anyway so how do you deal with that well you know these are giant questions that may be above my pay grade to be honest but you're good (laughs) the reality is that there's a whole generation of young people that are having a childhood very different than the ones you and i had and i think there's going to be uh, a real difficulty in terms of socialization, and adjustment. Uh, I'm less mm-hmm. worried about whether or not they learn their ABCs because you can learn them later. It's just developmentally, kids need to be around other kids. They need to learn how to socialize, um, you know, to to um, tolerate their own frustrations, to be able to cooperate with others. Yeah. These are things that are very hard to learn if you're sitting in front of a computer by yourself looking at others on the screen. So, I, I feel badly that they're not having the kind of freedom uh, of movement and thought that you need as a kid to develop. I'm less concerned about the education part. I, I, I know it's not as good, and uh, mm-hmm. I would find it horrifying not to be in a class. Um, but that said, I'm, uh, I, I think the only silver lining is it's not like every other kid's getting a lot of socialization either. The whole generation is going to be raised with the same experience so i think that that will be helpful but i i have patients who have college age kids and they're just not having the experience of campus life that i had yeah and it's a real shame i mean it's not going to kill them but it's a real shame uh these are important markers important uh milestones in a person's development and uh they're getting a very truncated form of that. And I think that there's consequences for that. So I, I do feel really badly for them. I really do. I feel badly too. My niece last term had three classes online and one that she had to go in for. And I said to her, I know you have to go in for philosophy, but Katie Rose, sit at the other end, make sure there's nobody near you, and when the bell rings, go out the door. And she did. She said she sat in the corner like I told her to. I said, if there's somebody in front of you, sit two seats for high room. I mean, it's, it's, it's scary. What bothers me is that the New York City public schools, I believe, are open. And most of the schools are open. And I'm concerned about those kids 
because you don't know when they come home where they've been. And I don't That's know right. how vigilant they are. I don't know how vigilant they are because temperature check means nothing. I mean, absolutely nothing. And parents in New York City schools, I mean, I taught there for 100 million years, they don't always take the chance to send the, they send the kids to school with a the cold. They don't care because they're working, and I understand that. But, I mean, I got the measles from one of them, German measles from one of them. When I first started to teach, I go, like, thank you so much. Or you get the flu. Or you get pink eye from somebody. You don't want that. I don't want people to get the COVID vaccine, COVID, from it. So I don't know if they're giving the children the vaccine also. They're supposedly giving the teachers, and there are some people that might decide that they don't want to. So what happens when a healthcare worker doesn't want to take the vaccine because they're afraid, or a police officer or a teacher doesn't want to take it? Do they have the right to say no? I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know. I would suspect yes. they do have the right to say no, uh, unless the you know the administrator or let's the head of the school yeah. board or whoever functionary is says a requirement for teaching is to have the vaccine or a requirement for you to be an ER doctor is that you take the vaccine but there are yeah. there are medical personnel I'm hearing even frontline people you know working in ICU units and stuff who who don't want to take the vaccine because they're unsure of the side effects yeah but my me too. feeling is I, my feeling is that's an appropriate risk to take uh, I mean, I just I don't quite understand that. Um, I think people should take it if they have the opportunity to. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's still an individual choice. And, you know, I, I'm more of a fan of I was I'm old enough to remember when you were in school and had to take the polio mm-hmm. and, and salt vaccine. And you didn't get to debate whether you wanted to take it or not. If you were in that classroom, you took it. And I think they should just, I mean, I think the rollout's not been done very well, but I think it should be mandatory, just like I think wearing a mask in public should be mandatory. I agree with you. I I believe in the science. I don't care about someone's opinion. I only see, you know, everybody goes, well, I'm entitled to my opinion. And my feeling is you're entitled to informed opinion. If your opinion is not informed, I don't care about it. And so... Mm -hmm. That argument seems crazy to me, but you know I'm not in charge of the planet, you know. So for some reason uh, I'm 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 not in charge, and so I guess if people want to refuse to take uh, the vaccine or refuse to wear a mask, all I do is just chalk it up to human stubbornness and uh, a, a belief that is non-factual and opinion-based. And like I said way at the beginning the problem with the virus from the very beginning is that it got politicized and the moment that happens the facts uh, or the science is irrelevant it's almost like if you believe that there are people dying of covid in hospitals who still Mm. believe covid's a hoax because trump said it was they're going to die from a hoax and that's just delusional thinking and one thing I've learned as a therapist is you can't argue with a delusion. You just can't argue with it. Uh, there are going to be people who literally are dying of COVID who That's till right. their dying breath will believe it's not COVID and that it's a hoax and that it was started by Bill Gates or some horrible, stupid conspiracy theory. There's nothing you can do. Delusions are like bedrock and very, very 
almost impossible to uh, dissuade someone. So I, all I, I know is so, that in yep. September 5th, 2020, I went to buy glasses for my doctor's wife, and we were standing and you know carrying on for about an hour, just talking about glasses and how many pairs I buy every month, whatever, and we're just talking about stuff in general. The week after, on the 12th, to be exact, I called to say, are my glasses ready? And I got a voice on the phone that said, somebody had COVID in its clothes. I said, could it be that this person had it? It was my doctor's wife. So naturally, I had to get tested, uh, PCR, and that, because it was a week later. I was thanking God that I got, but it was negative, because yeah, I was with her for over an hour and a half. They say if you're with somebody for more than 15 minutes, you're in big trouble. I mean, that mm. was scary. So I, I'm not taking any chance. The problem is this also, is that they're only giving it up here in pharmacies or in urgent care. Doctor's offices, my doctor told me he's not getting it. The private doctors are not getting it. Primary care doctors can't give it to you. So they don't know if they're giving it to you in Rite Aid or CVS or Walgreens, they don't know how they're doing it. Because don't they have to have somebody there to make sure that you don't have an attack? An allergic reaction to it. You're supposed to stay someplace for half an hour. My cousin took it in a car yesterday, and she said that she didn't have a reaction, but she, they put a sticker on her car that said, this time you have to stay there, and if you have a problem, honk your horn. So I don't know. If they're giving it in the pharmacy, there's, I don't know if there's a medical person that's going to be there or if they do it in a parking lot. That's what concerns me. Besides yeah, I, I don't taking, know the protocols either. Yeah, and I, I think that's one of the problems people seem to be describing. I mean, I don't have any personal experience with this, yeah. but they're describing that the rollout is so chaotic. And, you know, there's so many different ways you can get the shot, but you don't know whether you can trust the person giving it to you. You know, it, it, again, yeah. because it's so disorganized, I think it leaves people uh, very stressed uh, as to the efficacy of the vaccine and who's administering it to me, and do I need a second one? What's the story? And frankly, yeah. there just hasn't been enough time. I mean, most of the time when vaccines are developed, there's a six- to nine-month trial period where the developers get to see what reactions are. Well, everyone was in such a rush to get a vaccine that it seems like we don't know what the long-term issues surrounding the vaccine are. still better that we have one. I mean, I'm still very pro-vaccine, but uh, uh, I can imagine people's uneasiness with some of the issues around it. I heard some last week, I read it like my New Zealand thing. Somebody, a man died very young because his platelets were too low. Platelet count was too low. And he died like a month and a half after, they, and the wife blames it on the vaccine. I mean, these are things that are very, but you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, my cousins got it yesterday, today, then my other cousin's going to get it. And my cousin said that she had no vac, no problem. My other cousin had it. And he's in assisted living. He can never come home. That's a whole other nightmare. And he said he had no problem with the shot either. But you don't know. You know, it could be two days from now, five days from now. That's what that's what concerns me, because I don't like I don't, needles. Don't bother me. And I had a reaction. I take Floblock because I'm allergic to egg whites, eggs, which is a joy. And I took the Floblock, which has no egg protein in it, and I got a massive headache the next day. But you know what? You get over it. Because they had no choice. You have to take the flu shot. So yeah. I don't know. 
the the kind of the kind of side effects they're saying almost across the board of like you get the flu, you get a headache, you get nauseous, so what? You get fever. That would be shocking because I never get fever. My temperature is 97.6 normally. If it goes up to 98, they give me an antibiotic like you're sick. Don't worry about it. But how do you deal with that? I mean, seriously, that that's what bothers me is that, you know, you're going into um, a pharmacy, going into a doctor's office, urgent care, and you're nervous enough. How do you calm yourself down before they're giving you this vaccine and pray that you don't have a reaction to it? That That's, well, that's what no- scares me. Well, there's no one-size-fits-all answer to that question. There are people who calm themselves by prayer. There are people who calm themselves by meditation. There's people who calm themselves by deep breathing. Uh, I think one of the things is to ask yourself, do you have faith in science? Do you have faith in the medical institutions? I think that, you know, when we go and drive our car, we have faith that everyone's going to stop at a red light. Because we do, and that's how it works. And so I think the best way to calm your fears, uh, and you're still going to have them, but but is to ask yourself, well, most of the time, people who are in the medical profession or who are in administration of medication know what they're doing. And Mm -hmm. I have to trust that that's true. Because otherwise, you never leave the house. You never trust anything. You know, every time we flip a light switch, we trust the light's going to Yeah. Or it's like I said, if you go out driving, you hope everyone else stops at a red light. You know, so we can't function. Uh, you know, we're a very social beings. One of the reasons isolation is so difficult for us is that we're social beings. And so we have to live in a societal construct where we have certain amount of faith in certain amount of things. And I think, again, that, that's why the capital siege was so terrifying to people. It, it was. It broke, that, it broke that assumption. Oh, a place like that is totally safe. You know, it's the same as thinking, wow, driving my car, everyone else stops at a red light. So I, I think what is making people so anxious is the feeling that there's a breakdown in certain assumptions that we've always had. And I think that I just, creates a lot of destabilization for people. I just hope that the Biden administration does something better, but who knows? You know, no one knows better. But before I forget, where's my paper? On Monday we have um, Connie DeMarco, The Madness of Mercury, and on Wednesday... I didn't get a perfect confirmation, but I hope he doesn't. I hope he still wants to do it. James Corpando, the twenty, on the twenty-first, FBI agent Michael Tabman and I take on the Capitol problem. On the twenty-fourth, um, author Robert Bates. On the twenty-seventh, the author of Winter Witness, and on the first, um, the author of Gates of Avalon. On the third, and I hope this man stays healthy to do it. Uh, Paul Marx is going to be there with his with his novel, and on the fourth, Iris and Roy Johansson, blink of an eye. She said yes because she said that I'm the one of the few people that knows what not to ask. I sent her the question. She picked out the uh, yeah, it's a serious. She picked out the ten or twelve she'll answer. And then I said, "Will you mind telling a brief summary?" She said, "Only for you." Because I've interviewed her a while ago, and she said to the to the publicist, Fran knows what she's not supposed to ask. That's what the book is about. So I came up oh, with other questions, I, I, and I love her. She's a riot. But 
She won't answer. If you say well, that, I, this I happened that, in the story. I, I heard that you said you're having Paul Marks. His new novel, The Blues Don't Care, is a great book. It's really I wonderful. I was lucky enough to be an early reader of it. And uh, He's going to do it February 3rd at 10. I just hope he's okay because I read the book and I was shocked. It was fantastic. And I hope that he writes a sequel because I want to know what else happens to the character. Yeah, I think it's, it's a fantastic. Great and a great, a great character. I also know Connie, and she's great too. So you have two good author guests coming up. They keep my mind going, I'll tell you that. And for those of you that don't know what this person is writing, well, I wrote What If. I wish more people would read it, because what if you lived in my world? You might stop acting like a fool in this one. This one's called The World Without People. I created eight worlds that are very odd where no people live. Um, A world of all ice, a world of all mist, a world with no sun, a world that's all desert, a world with all devastation and forest and whatever else. And I started to, and I had, at the end of each um, section, I invited a, one person to come back for a couple of paragraphs to tell what it's like to be there. And they asked, would you want to be in my world? At the end, I just realized I wrote in my um, Hidden Truths and Lies a story called Journey to Nowhere. I'm going to take that story, I hope, and put it at the end of the book and rewrite it and have this person go to a journey to oblivion and keep traveling through each of the worlds and tell what he sees. And he winds up, of course, nowhere because there's nowhere to wind up. I thought that was kind of different. I just hope everybody likes it because I think it's, I don't know, it's my one of my crazy ideas. What can I say? Well, it sounds so, very inventive, certainly very inventive. It's not going to be a 500-page novel if it's 150 pages, but it's just to just to get people to realize you got to you got to wise up. <laughs> I was going to add something well, at the end about the I don't know if I want to add the riots or stuff like that. I, I always think it's a mistake to put too much contemporary stuff in a book or yeah. an article or a short story because it dates the story. You know. Um, that's why yeah. so many writers in my therapy practice don't know whether to talk about COVID in a script they're writing because five I hope years they don't. from now, if, if, if COVID's not that big an issue five years from now, it will date the material. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm a big, I, I just am a big believer in don't put anything contemporary uh, in terms of, uh, I mean, you could put cell phones, of course, but I mean in terms of like something that just happened in the news. Because by the time your book comes out, it's old news. So I, I I think that's a good idea. Yeah, that's why I'm doing a world without people because you never know. This could happen. What's next? I I just thought it would be so 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 different than in, than anything else I have ever written. I don't know why, but yeah, it's it is different. So tell us about your series and your books before we hang before we finish. And tell us what what you what you're going to write. Hope soon. Yeah, and you write you and Vincent Zandri should be on the same panel one day. But how do you create fear when you write? Seriously. Well, those are two different questions. I mean, building suspense in a book, it, you know, it, it takes a lot of craft to do it. And the yeah. hard part is putting in enough so that the person's anxious, but not so much that it alleviates their dread. And so. You want them turning the pages, but to be scared to turn the pages. That's kind of the key. Um, I write a a series of mysteries. Uh, Actually, they're more Mm -hmm. crime thrillers. 
the Daniel Rinaldi series. And uh, there's five books in the series so far, and hopefully there'll be another one. And oh, good. Um, the, 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 the main character is a psychologist who's a trauma expert who consults with the Pittsburgh police. And what he does is he deals with the victims of violent crime, people who have like PTSD or were so traumatized mm. by their experience. Like if you were a bank teller and you got, the bank got robbed or you got carjacked or there was a home invasion. And so oftentimes in mystery stories, we don't really pay attention much to the victims. We just go, yeah, oh, boy, that was terrible. And then we go on with the investigation. My books always uh, deal with the effect of the crime on the victim as well yeah. as solving the crime. And so um, I've, I've had a good time writing them. I'm very pleased. Uh, my, my most recent one, Head Wounds, uh, Suspense Magazine, made it, uh, named it the best of 2018. So nice. I, I've been... I, very lucky in terms of the critical response and and supporters of the series. And uh, I hope your your listeners will check out the book. Uh, you can learn about the books by going to my website, uh, DennisPalumbo.com, yeah. and you can read the reviews and the blurbs and see if this is the kind of book you might like. Well, I'm going to put the rev- – after I put this, the link out for the show, I'm going to put your reviews out on my Facebook wall. So everybody could see them. My my oh, my, my brilliance. I, I, thank you. I, I can I, do that. I, I appreciate. I appreciate. That. I, I can do that. I really appreciate this because now I don't feel so nervous. As well. <laughs> yeah, what, what can I say? <laughs> I mean, just I I have to I have a medical appointment at two o'clock for five minutes just for no big deal, and what I do is I call and I go, "Are you ready?" And I said, "If you don't have a room, I'm sitting in my car. I will not sit in the <laughs> office ever." I mean, they—they they, that's what they do. I, I'm, I'm so excited. I'm getting my teeth cleaned tomorrow. I'm, I'm excited. But I call for my my car, and they say, the room is ready. You can come in now. And there's nobody else there. Because the dentist's office is one of the few places you can actually get that virus because you're sitting without a mask. And it worries me that yeah. the person before me or after me has a mask. So I'm first. I'm first tomorrow. I only make the first yeah. appointment. Otherwise, I won't go. And she's wearing a hood and a, and a, a shield and everything, and she understands that I hate getting this done, so she takes her time. And then we sit and talk for a while. But thank you so much. I will get in touch with you with the May 24th with you, Alan Topol. I asked Jim Nesmith. I'm waiting for him to say yes. Otherwise, I have a backup plan. Don't worry about that. You know I do. But this this is okay. great, and I, I I learned a lot. I wish you were here to to psychotherapy me seriously, <laughs> because there are days there are days I just need to like you know you walk in I walk outside and I go I want to just scream at some of these people like yep. are you an idiot? But I figured maybe I if I write this book, and um, I was told I were one of the publicists that works for one of the companies that I review with. He told me after I get the book um, edited or whatever to send it to his company, maybe they'll take it. That would really make me very well, happy. That would, that would be great. Well, I do appreciate that would be great. you having me on, Fran. I, I really do. I always enjoy our conversation. Thank you so much, everybody. Like I say at the end of every show, one small ask. Please make sure when you go outside you wear a mask. I'll protect you, and you protect me. Dennis, stay safe, stay strong. Everybody have a great day, and bye. Bye Bye-bye.